You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Greg. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. Glad you're here this morning. Hope that you did okay this week. Rick mentioned this earlier, but it was a wild week uh, with the ice storm. I, I don't want to just say this. Um, if, you, if you have a need, if, if, if maybe it was worse for you than worse for others this week and you need help, or you have a need, let us know. Don't, don't keep that need to yourself. If you're a part of this church family, let us know. We we have, uh, I love the generosity of spirit that God has put in this church. We've had multiple people already reach out that just says, hey, if you know of anybody in the church that has, needs help or has a need, let us know. We'd love to help meet that need. And so there's brothers and sisters in Christ that love you, that would love to help you. Uh, if you've got a mess at your house or uh, if you have other needs that came up this week. But, um, but I'm glad that you're here. We're back in Mark chapter 11. As Greg read for us, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open to Mark chapter 11. Um, the end of the text, the scribes, the, the chief priest, uh, these are members of the Sanhedrin, they perceived that Jesus had told this parable against them, and they perceived correctly. Um, Mark chapter 11 is a passage about authority. So if you're taking notes this morning, that's really the word. It's, it's about authority. It's a, it's, it's, it's a confrontation about who has authority, who really has authority, and who thinks they have authority. And this scene is on the heels of Jesus uh, demonstrating unprecedented authority in the text before in the temple, in the middle of the Jerusalem temple. Josh did an awesome job last week walking us through this in Mark 11, 15 through 25, where we see Jesus showing up to the temple. He's driving people out of the temple courts. He's flipping over tables. He's knocking over the seats of the money changer. He brings the operation of the temple to a complete halt. I just want you to imagine if someone came in here this morning and, and flipped over the coffee table while you're waiting in line and kicked all these chairs over. You know, I mean, it would be quite the scene. Everyone is shocked. Everyone is a bit stunned. And then Jesus, once he has their attention, he begins to teach and he gives a message. We saw this last week. And I'll paraphrase the message a bit, but in verse 17, he says, what was this temple, what was meant to be a place of worship, this, this space of refuge and blessing to the nations, this dwelling place of God has been turned into a hideout for the wicked. I mean, imagine that if someone came in here this morning and turned this place upside down and brought it all to a halt. And they said, this place is supposed to be a gathering space for the family of God. The body of Christ has become a playground for bullies. I mean, you'd be like, whoa, whoa who's he talking about? Who's the bullies? Is it the volunteers that are serving? Is it the, is it the staff members that are leading worship? It, who's the bullies? It, it's probably the ones giving oversight to all of this. It's probably the, the pastors and the elders. Now, God forbid anyone would ever say that about this church. But I think it helps us get a sense of the vibe. He's, Jesus is, in other words, Jesus is giving an indictment, not only to the temple, but to those who are leading and giving oversight to Israel's life and worship. And that would be the members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of kind of leading Pharisees and scribes and chief priests and elite family members of the chief, chief priests. There were 71 of them total. And it would be like if the legislative branch and the judicial branch and the executive branch of the U.S. government was all folded into one team. That's, that's what this was like. The Sanhedrin ruled over <clears throat> Israel's not only religious life, but their social and political life as well. And Jesus is charging them. He's calling out their spiritual blindness and their self-righteousness, and this sparks a confrontation that will spill over throughout the rest of 
chapter 11, what we'll see today, and throughout chapter 12. And so if you're taking notes today, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the confrontation, the question of authority, who has it and who doesn't. Then we're going to see a warning. Jesus is going to tell a parable, which Greg read for us. And in the parable, there's a warning and a promise, a confrontation, a warning, a promise. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we come to you and we ask that you would be our teacher today, that you would lead us, that you would speak to us. We open your word and we give you thanks for your word, how it reveals who you are, what you're like, and what you've done. And may we, may we even humble ourselves before it this morning. We ask that you would help us to see Jesus for all that he is and all of his glory and all of his authority. Help us to comprehend the gospel, the promise that you offer us, and help us to Lord, humble ourselves before you so that we might live. We might truly live. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 11. Let's look back at verse 27, 28. There's a confrontation. And they came to Jerusalem, talking about Jesus and disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Talking about what he did the day before. And who gives you the authority to do them? And so Jesus returns to the temple. It's not just Jesus. It's the disciples. It's the crowds. They're all showing back up. What is Jesus going to do? What's he going to say today? And he's met by the members of the Sanhedrin. They're all there together. It's this um, show of force, in a way. It's this public flex of what they're doing. They're all together. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they're together, they meet Jesus, and they challenge him, they question him. They, um, <clears throat> they're certainly trying to regain order and reestablish themselves as the authority after what happened the day before. And they ask him the question, by what authority do you do these things? Who's given you the authority? In other words, who's, who's credentialed you to do what you've done? To say it this way, they say, who do you think you are? How dare you? And who do you think you are coming in here? doing what you've done. And their question, it reveals an attitude of ownership among the authority of the day. There's this attitude of ownership, like you're on our turf. This is our temple. And they're wrestling here with authority. I want you just to note that. There's this attitude of we are in charge and we are now coming and we're judging you, Jesus. We're judging you. They're judging the judge. And I want you to know something. This question of authority in our text today is relevant for us. I want to just kind of push pause for a minute, and I want to reflect on this. It's, it's relevant for us. This is a text about the authority of Jesus Christ showing up and disrupting the authority structure of the day. And I want us to ask the question, what is the authority of our day? What is the authority structure of our day. Who, who has it, right? In Jesus's day, the Sanhedrin had the authority, and all authority flowed down from them into public life. But what about in our day? Where does authority sit in our day? And here's the answer. might surprise you. For you and I, in this place that we live, the space and time that we live in, the authority in our day is in the self. It's in the self. In other words, this might sound familiar to you. This might sound like the world that we live in the society that we live in. In our society, we're told to think about truth and authority this way. I am the authority in my own life. I determine my own happiness. Where is freedom found? Well, freedom isn't found in religious rules and 
And authority, freedom is found in self-autonomy. I need to just be free. Freedom is found in living out my desires. That's where freedom is found. That's where life is found, in the self. Truth, what about truth? Well, truth is what's true to me. Doesn't that sound like our society? My truth is what's true to me, and no one else has the right to tell me how I ought to think or how I ought to feel and how I ought to act. Well, unless what you think and feel and, and say offends me, then I can tell you that you shouldn't think and feel and say those things if it offends me, whether it's true for you or not, right? I mean, that's, this is the society that we live in. Truth and authority, we're told, sits in the self. This is the air we breathe. Sociologists call it expressive individualism. Some would go as far as to add radical in front of that. We live in a world of radical, expressive individualism. Other sociologists have coined the name of our day and our age, the age of the sovereign self. Just do a Google search on the sovereign self, and all kinds of stuff will pop up, people commentating on our society in the West. If you don't believe me, I want you to think about every Disney movie since the 1950s. Every Disney movie since the 1950s, this has been the theme of every movie. This, this age of the sovereign self, of expressive individualism, of authority, truth, being inside of me that needs to get expressed. What does Simba want to do? He just wants to be king, right? What about Elsa? What about for her? She's got to get free of everybody so that she can express who she really is. What about Moana or Mulan or Ariel, <laughs> they're all working to get free from the authority of their family so that they can be their true selves. On and on and on. This is the air that we breathe. This is the word of our day. And the spirit of our age, it isn't just staying cute with Disney. It's actually decades into this project of the self and the sovereign self. It's actually really starting to corrupt our world. Um, volunteerism. Charitable giving for decades now has been significantly down across the country. There are people that are talking about, uh, the, the, this, the people even calling it the baby boomer apocalypse. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But I guess baby boomers get older and start to age out. There's no more volunteers and there's, there's not anybody funding charitable giving across the country. And what's that going to do to our society? Why is this the case? Well, because there's a whole generation of people that are on this quest of the self. They're not thinking about others. They're not thinking about the good of society first. They're thinking about their own self-desires. This same ideology, it's, it's fueling radical thinking that is impacting an entire generation. This is the spirit behind the LGBTQ movement. This idea of the self and the self has to get expressed. What's the foundational belief behind that movement? That I am my attraction or my desires. And I must express it. That is my identity. I am what I feel. I am what I'm attracted to. And no one can tell me that I ought not express those things. Do you see the society that we live in? Where does authority sit in our society? What does the world tell us? It's in the self. One author sums it all up this way. I love this. This is from Trevin Wax. He says, for a society that is awash in expressive individualism in the sovereign self, the greatest commandment is to be yourself, and the second is like it, to affirm and applaud whatever self your neighbor chooses to be. And the greatest sin, then, is to deny yourself or to question or judge someone else's self-expression. 
Doesn't that sound like our current society? And so what does this mean about God? Does this mean that we've just punted God in our age today? Have we just punted him to the sideline? Like, where is God? Well, if research is true, which most research will tell you that among the emerging generation by the year 2070, that 52% of the U.S. population will identify as spiritual but non-religious. So what does this mean? I'm spiritual. I still need God, but I'm not religious. I don't want to submit to any other authority other than myself. Listen to what Mark Sayer says about this. He says, What we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of self and turning God into a massager of the personal will. Hmm. Spiritual, but non-religious. This is the air that we breathe. Like a fish in water. This is the world that we live in, and it is affecting us, and it is shaping us. Church family, this text is relevant for us because the authority of Christ creates a confrontation with the authority of the day, always, always. In the same way that these men come to Jesus in confrontation saying, who do you think you are? What right do you think you have? This is our temple. In the same way many of us and many people in our world today find ourselves in a confrontation with Jesus, wrestling with him and his authority. There are many that want to take Jesus, and in the text later will tell us he's the cornerstone that was rejected. What does that mean? Why would, why would builders reject a cornerstone? Well, because it won't fit into their plan. It doesn't fit into their building, and so he gets rejected. And Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. I'm not going to fit into your plan. You can't fit me into your image uh, under your authority. Jesus will not ride in the sidecar of our lives. He creates a confrontation with the authority in every age. Like many in our day, we, we wrestle with the authority of Jesus. Jesus, what right do you have telling me how I should or shouldn't live my life? Many of us carry an attitude of ownership, like what we see with the members of the Sanhedrin. Jesus, this is my life. This is my time. This is my money. These are my possessions. This is my body. It's my future. And we need to see Jesus in our text today before we go any further, disrupting authority, the authority of the day. Why? Well, because the gospel is always going to confront the spirit of the age. The gospel is always going to confront any view that makes the human person the end-all, be-all of existence. Because the, 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 the Bible tells us that we don't make an identity for ourselves. That's not how it works. We receive an identity, and we receive dignity from God, our maker and our creator. Because men and women were never created to be owners in the first place. That's how the whole story of the Bible begins. Men and women were created to be what? Not owners, but stewards. Stewards of God's good creation from the very beginning. God is owner of all. God is the one with all authority. Psalms 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is within it. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. You see, the root of our problem across every age with the the, 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 the Sanhedrin, all the way to our age of, of the sovereign self, the root of our problem 
is overreaching. The root of our problem, of our human condition, is seeking to become like God, wanting to be the authority and the owner and the ruler of our own lives. This is what the Bible calls sin. It's sin. And sin runs deep. It runs so deep in us as human beings across every age. And this is what the text is showing us. The depths of human pride and the depths of sin. I mean, think about it. We have these men, these religious leaders, who knew the scriptures better than anyone, standing before the beloved Son of God sent from the Father, questioning his authority, judging him. In fact, Mark chapter 11, verse 18 says that in their heart they wanted to kill him. The, the people that, that teach the commandments of the Lord, thou shalt not commit murder. They want to kill him. Do you see the depths of human sin and of human pride? Jesus is confronting our own perceived authority. Look what he says in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. You see that? (laughs) And I will tell you about what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me, Jesus says. And they discussed it with one another. I love this. It's like they're like, all right. You know, it's like you watch a, a, movie, a law movie and the, the, the case doesn't go the way that the, the lawyer, the attorney thinks it's going to go. And he's like, hey, can I get a recess, judge? You know, and they huddle up. What, what are we going to do? They, they kind of huddle up and have this conversation between themselves. They know they're stumped. Verse 31, they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Talking about John. But if we say from man, They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet, because he was. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus responds to them with a counter question. This this was common in Jesus' day. This was a common way of debate. So for example, if two Pharisees were debating a matter of the law, they would engage this way with question and counter question. Kids, next time that your parents tell you not to talk back, you could just tell them you're, you're being like Jesus. I'm just counter questioning. I'm, don't, I'm just kidding. Don't say that to your parents. <laughs> Honor your parents. Um, obey them, for it is good in the Lord's eyes. Jesus is doing this counter questioning here, which was common. And the fact that Jesus engages them in this way, it's a way of him saying, I'm not your subordinate. That's what he's doing. I'm not your subordinate. I don't answer to you. In fact, he tells him in verse 30, you answer me. And the nature of Jesus' question about John the baptizer, it exposes the lack of sincerity and the hypocrisy of these men. Um, Jesus asked them about John the baptizer. In other words, he's saying, well, if you're asking about my authority, let me ask you, who credentialed John? Who was it that credentialed John and gave him authority? Was it you? Did you give him authority to preach repentance and baptize thousands, or was it God? In other words, what he's saying here, what he's doing here is he's saying, does God need your permission to act? Is that what you're saying? Does God need your permission? Does God answer to you or do you answer to God? Jesus is turning this around on them. And and by the way, that is the question of every age. Does God answer to us or do we answer to God? That's the question of every age. And so they huddle up. They say, we don't know. There's no longer a debate. But... Jesus has more to say, and he has something not only to say to them, but what he has to say, it's public. It's meant for all of us to hear and understand, and he does so using a parable. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. In the parable, we find a warning, 
and we find a promise. Let me read it for us one more time. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. Matthew's gospel gives us two parables. Mark gives us just this one. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants. If you're taking notes, underline that. That's key. He leased it to tenants, to stewards, and he went away into the country, another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenant to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they looked at him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed, and, and, and and him they killed. And so, many, and so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. It's important. That language is specific. Jesus is using a beloved son. You remember Jesus' baptism? What does the father say? It's my beloved son. Remember the transfiguration in chapter 9? What does the father say? This is my beloved son. So Jesus is speaking very clearly about who he is and what authority he has. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? This is a quotation from Psalm 118, which is the same psalm they were singing during the triumphal entry here. The stone that the builders rejected have become the cornerstone, has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This parable is really potent, and so this could be its own sermon, <laughs> but we've got to get through Mark by Easter, so, um, so we're, we're combining it. It is really potent. And so let me just kind of give us two things here. First, it gives us a warning. It's a warning to all those who seek to be their own authority. It's a warning to those who live with an attitude of ownership. It's a warning that if you seek to be your own authority, it will not go well for you. It will not go well for you. You will be judged. It's a warning. And now the message is specific, first and foremost, to the leaders of Israel. It's a warning specific to them, first and foremost. I mean, they are literally the tenants he's talking about in verse 1. They're supposed to give oversight to the Lord's vineyard. The vineyard is an image that's used all over the Old Testament for God to, as he refers to his chosen people, Israel, his covenant people, Israel. It's all over the Old Testament. In fact, make a note of this. Jesus is using the same exact verbiage of Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7 here. So he's, he's, speak, he's not speaking coded. He's speak, they're decoding everything he's saying. Israel is the vineyard. Um, I wish I had some cool pictures like Josh had last week, but he's just, he's just better than me. Or I was just at home all week with my kids frozen in my house, and I couldn't find it. But when, when, when you would walk into the second court of the temple in Jerusalem, guess what was wrapping the entrance? Vines, golden vines because it was meant to remind Israel of their identity and their calling, that they are a vineyard of the Lord. They're to bear the fruit of the Lord 
in the world. We preached through Jeremiah, was that a year, a year and a half ago? I don't know if you remember that. And that image is all over Jeremiah, that, that God sends the prophet Jeremiah to pluck up and tear down and replant the vineyard of God because it's become so full of, of, of sinfulness, of wild grapes, uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5. And so he's speaking specifically here. This is potent. It, it, the, the tenants are, uh, are the, the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin. Israel is the vineyard. The law and the temple are the winepress and the tower. So this is specific first and foremost to them, but it's a message, it's a warning that applies to all of us. It will not go well for you if you seek to live as the authority in your own life because God is owner of all. Everything that you have has been leased to you by him, your money, your skills, your brain, your body, your life, your job, your occupation, your, your children, all of it has been leased to you by God to steward. I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you live like that? Like all belongs to God and it is yours to steward to his glory. Do you believe that? You see, the message is if you continue down the path of my money and my time and my life and my happiness and my body and my sexuality, it will not go well for you. Judgment is coming. That is the message. In fact, we got a picture this week. We got a picture this. Every, by the way, every pastor in Central Texas was trying to figure out how to fit two things into their sermon, the ice storm or the Chinese spy balloon. Um, uh, I decided to go with the ice storm, okay? Okay. Um, we need to pray, by the way, for uh, our world uh, with that other thing. I don't even know what to say about that. Um, we got an ice storm. We saw this week what happens when something tries to be something it was not meant to be, right? We saw trees become ice sculptures, didn't we? Something became something it was not supposed to be. And for a little while, it was actually beautiful, wasn't it? Like I looked out in my back on our back porch and the trees back behind our backyard, like for a little while there was something beautiful to it, that just the ice and, you know, just it was, it was really pretty to look at. But what happened over time? Over time, it was too much weight. <laughs> like tree, you're not meant or made to carry this much weight. And eventually it started to break. It started to crack and there was a mess. And I want you to know that the same thing is true in our life. You are not made to be the authority. You are not owner. You are made to be a steward of what God has given you. And the longer that you try and live as the authority in your own life, the authority over your own body, the authority over your own sexuality, the authority over your own money, the authority over your own children, the longer that you try and live that way, I, I'm, I'm the owner. Guess what's going to happen? Eventually it's going to crack and it's going to break and it's going to leave a mess. And that's the warning. Here the warning before it's too late. Second, we get a promise. See, most importantly, what this parable does is it points us to, to the gospel. This parable illustrates for us what God has come to do in Jesus. This parable, one commentator says, this parable sums up all of Mark's gospel. I would take even further. I think this parable sums up all of the Bible. This parable points us to the promise of God. It starts with, the land, the landowner in the vineyard, God and Israel. Um, uh, the landowner, the father, rightfully expects the vineyard to yield fruit. 
but the fruit isn't coming back to him. It's not getting back to him to the praise of his glorious grace. And so he sends servants to the vineyard, yet they're rejected and beaten and killed. All we have to do is flip to our Bible and read the prophets to know what he's talking about here, don't we? Prophet after prophet after prophet God sent to Israel, and they rejected them. They wouldn't listen to them. They're beaten. Many of them are beaten and, and killed. John the Baptist hit on the head, beheaded, you know? They don't listen to him. And finally, what does verse 6 say? Finally, when the time was right, when the time was right, comes the beloved son, comes the heir, comes the co-owner, the one who is equal with the father, coming to the vineyard, his people. And Jesus couldn't be any more clear about who he is here, but he too is rejected. He's plotted against. You see how in the parable they plot against him? Jesus is plotted against. He's killed, and he's thrown outside the vineyard. I think Mark wants us to see here Jesus crucified outside the city. And then he asks the question in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He's been abundantly gracious. He's, he's made himself known. He's offering forgiveness. He's been so merciful. He's been so slow to anger. Yet they rejected the Son, and so they will be judged. See, Jesus is telling us the gospel here. He's giving us the gospel. And in verse 12, it tells us that they actually get the message. They get it loud and clear. But rather than humbling themselves before Jesus, verse 12 tells us that they seek to arrest him, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. In verse 12, this reminds me of so many people that I know, so many people that I'm sure you know, that reject Jesus. They, they actually feel the weight of his truth. Actually, they, they feel it, they perceive it, but they won't, they won't accept it. They won't repent. They won't humble themselves. They, they harden their hearts against him, and they reject his grace. But this isn't the end of the parable. There is a promise. There is good news in verse 9 through 11. The parable comes to an end by telling us that the vineyard will be handed over to new leaders. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is leaving some breadcrumbs here. He's, he's pointing in, in a way of what will happen following his death. He wants the, the people that, to, to hear and to understand what will happen following his, his death. The vineyard will be handed over to new leaders. The vineyard will be redeemed, in other words. None of this stuff in the temple matters anymore. That's why he can knock it over and kick it over. That's why he can say that God's going to tear it down and raise it back up in three days, which is what he will say uh, coming up in chapter 12. That's, that's why he can say those things. None of this will matter anymore, especially the credentials of the Sanhedrin. That won't matter anymore because a new covenant is coming. A new covenant is being made. It's a covenant of grace. A new people will be formed through his death and resurrection. It's a, a people made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's called the church. He's forming a new people. It will be a, a new vineyard renewed where Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and life, uh, our life uh, is the life of Christ within us. A new temple will be raised in which Jesus is the cornerstone. He mentions in verse 10, it's a living temple in which Christ will live with us by his spirit. Christ will rule us. Christ will serve us. See, Jesus is pointing forward to all the good news and all the blessings and all the benefits offered in the gospel. So what is our text today? What is it? It's a confrontation around authority. Who has it and who doesn't have it? Who thinks they have it but who doesn't have it? It's a warning to humble those who hear, to humble themselves to the good rule of King Jesus in every way before it's too late. 
And it's a promise that all who do, that all who do humble themselves, they will experience, as he says in verse 11, something marvelous, something amazing. I want you to hear me. You do not have to be your own authority. You don't. You do not have to keep living like an owner or a ruler of your life. You don't have to think about your money as your money. You don't have to think about your job as your job. You don't have to think about your, your life as your life to rule and to manage. You don't have to think about your career as your career that you got to make sure you check every box and, and navigate your future. You are not the sovereign. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to think that way. Because God has done something in the gospel. God has actually acted to set us free from ourselves. Isn't that good news? He sent the beloved son to set us free from ourselves so that in Christ we can receive an identity from him. We don't have to make our own identity. We can receive one from him that is true and that is constant. You are beloved and you always will be no matter your circumstances, no matter your desires, no matter your feelings. You are hidden with Christ in God. Amen. Isn't that good news? We're free not only to receive a new identity, but all those who humble themselves under Jesus' authority are free to live under his authority. We actually can experience a new life in his kingdom where he rules and reigns, and his rule is good. That's called discipleship. It's what we call discipleship, learning actually to put off our desires and to crucify our feelings so that we can learn and live out his desires and bear his fruit in the world. We're free to live in his kingdom. This is the good news of the gospel for us in Mark chapter 12. As we close this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Jesus in faith and in repentance. I'm going to pray for us in a moment, and we're going to enter into a time of response. And I just want you to consider one thing. What does it look like for you to renew your faith that Jesus is king, that he is king, and actually crown him, make him your king, to, to put your faith in him afresh and anew? Maybe some of you for the first time, to actually crown Jesus as king of your life before it's too late and you crack. What does it look like to renew your faith that Jesus is king. And what would it mean for you to repent this morning? Is there a certain area of your life where you've been living like you are the authority, where you've been acting as if you are an owner? My time. I'm not going to serve. My money, I'm not going to give. My body, I'm not going to obey. What does it look like for you to repent this morning? Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond. Almighty God, we give thanks to you for your word. I pray that you would help us this morning to heed the warning and to receive the promise. Would you teach us, teach us to be a people, a church, a body that's fully surrendered to you in every way, that we would do your will, Jesus, that we would abide in Christ with the help of the Spirit, that we would steward all that we are and all that we have for your glory and for your gospel, that we wouldn't be people who act like owners of our lives. Humble us, Lord. Teach us that we might live in your kingdom, experience life in your kingdom here and now. As we enter into a time of response, I want to pray, Father, that you would, you would be in our midst, you would move in our midst this morning. As we receive the bread and the cup, I pray that you would nourish us, that you would remind us, help us taste and see that you're good, that you've met every need in Christ Jesus. Satisfy us with all of the promises of the gospel. And as we worship you, may we be filled with your love, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.